As you are no doubt aware by now, we are sick and tired of this year. And who can blame us, really? Look how it's gone. Masks and quarantines, campaigns and elections. Who'd want a year like this on their record? Not us. So we resolved to get out of this year as quickly and cleanly as possible. No point hanging about. Let's tidy up, off the lights, and lock the door behind us as we head into the new year. Except we can't. As we discussed in the introduction to last week's Lost episode, we've got too many words laying around to even think about getting close enough to the light switch to operate it, let alone get the door fully closed. There's just no way. We've got to clear some of them out so we can get out of this year alive. Now, before you call the grammar police to arrest us for running down to Word Mart and buying up all the essential words in this time of need, let us just say we came by these piles of words honestly. Sure, we've gathered some from our own research and reading, but the vast majority come from listener suggestions, some inspired by episodes heard, and some that just popped off the top of their collective head. All of them interesting, intriguing, and fun. And of course, the only way to get rid of them is to use them up. And the only way to use up all these surplus words is to get them into episodes. But the only episodes these words are fit for so far are lost episodes, thanks to a quirk of the way we do business around here. See, some words have to mature before they get an episode of their own, and unfortunately, many of the words we have laying around are still in their difficult adolescent phase. Be that as it may, we still need to get them out. But there were so many of them that just one lost episode wasn't sufficient. Which brings us to our present situation. When one won't do, we have to do two. So this is the second volume of the 15th lost episode. And in this episode, unlike the previous one, all the words featured here are ones submitted by our listeners. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy Lost Episode 15B. This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Our first stop on the way to word freedom and a successful escape from the year comes to us from so far back in the brackish mists of early 2020 that we've forgotten what the occasion was that inspired it. It's the curious and tragic tale of a man named Jacques Labadi and the Empire of the Sahara. Jacques was born one of four children to the so-called Sugar King of France, Jules Labadi, and his wife, Emissy, who founded a charity for the working poor. Jacques was the oldest brother, and so perhaps the most was expected of him. The family made several million francs in the sugar refining business and owned a few significant properties in and around Paris. When Jules passed away, a hefty percentage, some estimate it to be over 200 million francs, passed on to Jacques. Now you or I, faced with this sort of inherited windfall, might do one of two things. Either sock it away in some interest-bearing investment account and live off the proceeds for the rest of our days, or, if you are particularly wealthy already, throw it on the pile and forget about it. Not so Jacques Labadi. According to one source, by the late 1890s, Labadi had involved himself in breeding horses, 
which is upper crust society code for he had a lot of money he didn't know what to do with and so resolved to throw it away as quickly as possible. But it takes a special kind of person to do what he did next, though. And that would be the kind of person who either suddenly owes a lot of money to a lot of people, or who owes the government a lot of money. In June of 1903, Jacques packs everything up and goes off to make his own kingdom, thank you very much. You can't make me pay taxes to you if I'm my own sovereign, and once I have my kingdom I'll have my own army, so I'd like to see you collect what I owe then, nah nah nah. That's a bit of speculation on our part, but not as big a stretch as you might think. Throughout history, lots of people who went off to start their own countries did so because they were in financial trouble back home. So Jacques makes a few changes to his personal yacht, which involve adding guns and cannon, hires a dozen sailors for a ship along with two more ships and crew, pays a ridiculous amount for 400 or so soldiers for a hire, and sets sail for his own kingdom. And just where did he think his kingdom should be? Well, somewhere in the Sahara Desert. To be specific, he set sail from Paris and in fairly short order landed on the coast of Morocco, which, if you pay attention to who owned what, belonged to the Spanish. It's a narrow strip of land called Cape Juby, and when he arrives, he sets up what amounts to a big circus tent, sticks a throne inside, and lets the French authorities know he is to be addressed as Jacques I, Najin al-Din, Emperor of the Sahara, Commander of the Faithful, King of Tarfia, Duke of Arluf, and Prince of Chauhuin. None of which anyone has ever heard of before. Never fear, though. Jacques I has plans to ensure his new empire among the first of which was to send his hired troops straight out into the desert to conquer the city of, and we're really not sure how to pronounce this since the place was entirely made up by Jacques, Troja. He doesn't go with him, of course. He's too busy trying to work out how to breed Cheval. You know, that horse-camel hybrid everyone talks about and which is so handy for desert travel. Needless to say, the ragtag army straggles back into camp a few days later, with the entirely unexpected news that they can't possibly capture Troja because, as we mentioned, it doesn't actually exist. Which is probably fine, because a short time later the Spanish and the French have had just about enough of the little man in the desert trying to take things over and stirring up problems between them. Mainly because each of them already have disputed claims to the area, and Jock's presence isn't helping any. Which is also probably fine, because it's about now that Arab traders descend on the sailors and armies of Emperor Jacques I, capture them, and pack them off into Morocco proper, where they attempt to ransom them. Except Jacques refuses to pay, leaving all his hired sailors and troops high and dry, if you'll pardon the expression, until the French government shells the port city where they are being held, allowing them all to escape in the confusion. Both the French and the mercenaries then sue Labadi because he refuses to compensate anyone for lost time and effort, let alone pay what he owes already. In fact, the French sue him so hard that the penalty is Labadi's conscription to military service in the French army, of which he is having none of, so he takes off for The Hague to plead his case. Just four months after starting the whole venture, Jacques is ensconced in a hotel in London, still claiming to be the emperor of the totally real kingdom of the Sahara, just, you know, holding his court in the Savoy Hotel. Oh, and he's picked up an empress somewhere along the way as well, which is nice. 
Sadly, it isn't nice. By now, it would be fair to suggest that somewhere in among all this activity, Jacques had lost an entire bag of very important marbles. His wife, actress Marguerite Augustine Delierre, ruled with him in the Savoy for several years and bore him a daughter, after which the whole family disappeared for a time. A few years later, they turn up in residence at what used to be the French ambassador's home in New York, where he was said to have regularly marched down the streets of New York, followed by stenographers and boys packing typewriters, for reasons which are entirely obscure to anyone with enough tacos to make a combination plate. Just for good measure, he would frequently stage cavalry charges at all hours of the day and night across Hempstead Plains, at which he used mounted Western Union messenger boys as his troops. The general public was swiftly running out of patience with Jacques. Life at home was no better. He had grown to dislike his wife, supposedly because she had given him no male heir to inherit his vast empire of sand. He was frequently violent when he was at home, though he was at home very little. It was reported that he took an axe to the furniture on one occasion, and on another had entirely ripped out the home's furnace as some sort of punishment. It all came to a head one night in January 1919 when, after having got it into his head that his daughter would provide him the air he wanted, his wife shot him dead on the stairs to their daughter's bedroom. Marguerite was not convicted, and the story of the Empire of the Sahara ends here. We turn now to the English gardens of the 16 and 1700s. Why, you may ask? Well, because a listener suggested to us that we might get some mileage out of the word ha-ha. And that naturally sent us down a long rabbit hole regarding the history of English gardens and a backdoor tie-in to Jacques Labadi, which we're sure you will work out by the end of this episode. Plus, we managed to get three suggested words covered all at once. See, the English garden was a novel idea at the time that went something like this. We used to have a bunch of peasants around the place living in villages and being villains, about which see our episode on peasants. But now they've mostly all gone away thanks to the more or less end of serfdom. Now all we have are vast muddy stretches of farmland being grazed by far more profitable sheep and the like outside the fancy front doors of our manors and castles. Whatever are we to do? Well, along about the 16th and 17th century, the thing to do was to decorate the place up a bit and try to replant these former living areas with grasses, trees, and flowers so that you at least had something besides mud and sheep to look at. And that, more or less, was the birth of the formal English garden. The formal garden is a geometric arrangement of paths and vegetation that present a very rigid appearance to the observer. Everything is straight lines and square flower beds over which the lord of the manor could gaze at his holdings and you've probably seen more than a few in period dramas and actual still existing English estates. There's usually some sort of water feature, and the whole thing is based on the idea of symmetry and order, which suited the people of the Renaissance just fine as they were coming out of the disorder of the medieval period and looking for something solid to grab onto. It did mean the sheep had to move out further afield, as it were, but that was fine because no one of any importance at all actually liked to look at sheep all that much anyway. Then, about the middle of the 18th century, people suddenly got tired of the formal garden and started getting rid of them. After all, it took a huge amount of money and time to maintain them, 
not to mention the number of staff one had to keep on hand just to trim the shrubbery. Not only that, but the feeling of the time was that these gardens didn't actually reflect much of the natural world around them. And since the 18th century was all about a renewed interest in nature and all it had to offer, formal gardens stuck out like sore thumbs as some of the most unnatural things around. Far better, then, was the new style of natural garden. Part of the reason natural gardens really took off was because they looked very much like the classical and renaissance landscape paintings, which were also suddenly very popular again. These paintings showed rolling green hills and naturally occurring wildflowers and stands of established mature trees, and they were gorgeous. Why not get some of those in to brighten the place up instead of all these close-trimmed hedges and hard rock pathways to nowhere? So a revolution began in the gardening world. Out went the old formal gardens and in came the new natural gardens, and everyone was happy. Well, everyone except anyone who happened to own some sheep, which, as we pointed out elsewhere, was practically everyone who used to have ungrateful and expensive-to-keep serfs. Sheep were much more lucrative and less expensive creatures to keep, and they hardly ever revolted. And with a formal garden, you could easily have any number of sheep, all kept at bay with as many fences and gates as you liked, tucked out of sight on the other side of the garden. But many converts to the natural garden style were surprised to learn that nature grows very few fence or gate-like plants. Almost none, in fact. So the problem was, how do we keep the sheep from cozying right up to the manor again and ruining our breakfasts with their very basic sheepness? We don't want fences and gates because not only do they not occur in nature, but they also spoil this lovely painting-like view we spent so much money and time having put in. What are we to do? Well, let's build a wall, said someone. At which point everyone went through the same arguments again. Walls aren't natural either, you dolt, and they still spoil our view. What were you thinking? What I was thinking, your lordship, was that you have a lot of rolling hills all over the joint now thanks to your insistence that the place look as much like a painting as possible, and I, your lowly and insignificant gardener, could probably use that to hide the walls from view and keep the sheep out in a way you'd never notice from inside your lovely little manor here. And so that's what the gardener did. Essentially, you just cut a hill in half down the middle and toss out all the dirt on the side that faces away from whatever direction you'll be viewing it from. Throw up a brick wall against the now vertical side of the hill, and you have a method by which to prevent sheep from getting on the beautiful lawns and rolling hillsides the house sees. As an added bonus, there are even more picturesque rolling hills to enjoy viewing now. And as far as the gardener is concerned, he gets a lovely little laugh every time someone strolling the lawns fails to spot the well-hidden drop-off on the other side of a hill and falls down about six foot of brick wall. Ha ha! Which is what they're called. But that's not all there is to know about English gardens. Because English gardens, formal or natural, were all about how things looked to the outside world as well as the inside. And it took almost no time at all for up-and-coming English nobility and the newly rich to recognize something else that made the oldest, richest, and most powerful landowners in their estates stand out from all the rest. See, practically every old castle had been around a long, long time. And one of the ways you could tell they had been around a long, long time was that they often had other, even older structures on the grounds, especially as the medieval period was winding down. Old Roman forts and villas were a favorite when it came to a visual symbol of just how ancient a property was, 
and by extension, just how long the family who owned the place now had been in residence, and therefore how much they deserved to be in charge of the place. And if we haven't by now driven the idea that appearing legitimate is the key to a whole lot of historical happenings, both past and present, then we never will. It wasn't just Roman ruins, though. Old monasteries torn down during the reign of Henry VIII in a period known as the Dissolution of the Monasteries were favorites as well. Even the ruins of former parts of still existing buildings were considered highly desirable bits of property, no matter whether they'd been destroyed by fire or pulled down around the owner's ears by hostile forces. Anything that indicated you and your home had been there very nearly forever was valuable. Ruins were a sign of wealth and power if they were on your property. And not just anyone could get those, could they? Or could they? Well, it turns out the answer is yes. Just about anyone with enough money can have a set of ruins built on their land. And there were generally two ways to go about it. In the first method, you simply got hold of an architect and had them design one for you. Ideally, at least initially, it looked just as ruined as other actually ruined ruins located elsewhere. And the designs usually included collapsed walls, rusted iron bars, and a certain tendency for the structure to look as if it was about to topple over, even if it wasn't. Partial castle keeps, half-ruined watchtowers, and knocked-through fortress walls were the bargain deals of the day. All purpose-built to seem as if they'd been there for ages, even if they'd only gone up last week. The other method was far more suspect and unscrupulous. See, there were and are a lot of ruined structures located around the English countryside, and not all of them are necessarily conveniently located to anyone who might want a bit of ancient architecture on their own personal land. So you might, without the benefit of asking for permission, send out some of your loyal men over several nights to very carefully remove one of these unattended structures from a place that didn't really seem to need it to a place where it certainly would have been had the people who built it originally only thought ahead a bit more and placed it on your future land instead. It must be quite the surprise to discover the old ruined keep that used to be up on the downs was now in residence on Lord Bottlebrush's estate instead. And so many things of archaeological and historical significance were ruined. Soon though, even having a ruin about the place was insufficient. No, anyone could have a ruin, as it turned out, and so it wasn't all that special anymore. Soon these structures were taking on much more magnificent forms, becoming ever more extravagant as one baron attempted to outdo the next. People began building Greek temples, Egyptian obelisks, English castle towers, and Gothic cathedrals, each more complicated than the last, just to have the things around the place just to look at just to impress the neighbors. And it wasn't just in England either. Spain, France, Italy, and other European countries got in on it too. And for a time, it seemed like every European country wanted some ancient building from every other European country, or even the Far East, on their front lawns. And none of it was really any use at all. They were huge and expensive and an apparent waste of money which is why they got called follies, and why the term folly has come to be attached to any sort of massive expenditure or effort, which is deemed to be of no purpose other than to be looked at and admired. Except we have to be careful calling things follies. Why?
Well, because if you know your history, you'll know about Seward's folly. In the first half of the 19th century, Russia had set up shop in the far north of North America, but it wasn't going very well. No one really wanted to live there, and the Crimean War had really sort of knocked it out of Russia. So Alexander II of Russia was looking to unload the over half a million square miles of hard-to-defend territory. He found a buyer in the form of U.S. Secretary of State William Seward. And on October 18, 1867, the United States became the owners, at a rate of about two cents an acre, of what would become Alaska a few years later. At the time of purchase, it was referred to as Seward's Folly by his opponents because it was a frozen wasteland with little to no redeeming value whatsoever. A useless purchase, populated only by a remnant of Russian citizens and the local indigenous people. Until 1896, when the Klondike gold strike occurred and vast quantities of gold were hauled out of the ground and Americans looking to make their fortunes flooded into the soon-to-be state. And then, of course, there came all the oil reserves. And so, just like Seward's folly eventually became valuable and in hindsight a pretty good deal, so too did many of the follies built in England to spruce up the various gardens. You see, many of them have been converted into small apartments and rooms to house the modern-day tourist, intent on seeing and experiencing an authentic old English country estate and its garden, both natural and formal. So they, too, have turned out to be a source of profit and revenue. But that whole empire of the Sahara? Nah, that's a complete folly. Thanks for listening to this episode of GM Word of the Week. We hope you enjoyed hearing our two-part Lost episode. The end of the year is fast approaching, and we have quite the treat in store for you for the final two weeks. As we've mentioned before, we are supported entirely by contributions from our listeners. In exchange for this support on Patreon, we provide ad-free episodes to everyone, among other things. And one of those other things is a bonus episode every month for our $10 supporters. It's a short, extra bit of info related to one of our previous month's shows that makes for a bit of fun and they usually run for about 8 to 10 minutes. Unless, of course, you package them up into two hour-long bonus episodes at the end of the year, which is exactly what we've done. That's right, two hours of bonus GM Word of the Week content over the course of the next two weeks to end the year. If you've ever wished for longer episodes, these are them. And it's quite the variety, too. Not your standard fare, but very much in keeping with the show overall. All that remains is for us to encourage you to become a supporter, too. It's been a crazy year, but we've managed to keep the episodes coming thanks to the support of our listeners. Head over to gmwordoftheweek.com and click the yellow banner at the top of the page to find out how you can join our Patreon for the very reasonable amount of $1 per episode. Or more, if you like. We're not adverse to that. If you need options besides Patreon, those are there, too. We're happy to have your support, no matter what form it takes. This episode was researched, written, and produced by Brian, is this year over yet, Casey. 
Music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. If you have a garden in the library, you have everything you need.